Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. Good evening. Hey, that was a really hearty hello. Thank you for Nick there. Well, well done to you, Nick. You're now my favourite. Please turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 14. As Lucas said, we're going to be dealing with the parable of the large banquet. That's my heading in my Bible. And that parable itself runs from verse 15 to verse 24. But in order to give you the fullest context for its meaning, we need to start a few verses back, just a couple of verses back, at verse 12. Because in Luke's account of the parable of the Great Banquet, it comes off the back of another parable, which is the teachings about humility and talking about a wedding banquet. So I'm going to read from verse 12, chapter 14. Um, it kind of comes in part the way through a discussion, um, but for kind of economy of the, the time I have to work with, I won't be able to read it all to you. But Jesus says this, he says, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbours because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor and are maimed, are lame or blind and then you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those who had reclined at the table with him heard these things, they said to him, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus told him, A man was giving a large banquet and he invited many. At the time of the banquet he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, Come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a field, and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I've brought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married, and therefore I am unable to come. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. But then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, Go instead and go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the blind and the lame. Master, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done and there's still room. Then the master told the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and make sure they come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of these people who were invited will be my banquet. So there are a couple of points I want to offer to you from this parable and then I'm going to do something quite daring. I'm going to skip into a context that you think this parable talks nothing about, but I can assure you that it does. And to give you the heads up slide for that, there we go. You're wondering now, how the goodness gracious did we get from the parable of a banquet to Nicolas Cage in the Left Behind movie. All will be revealed. All will be revealed. 
So this banquet, so some of you look at them look away, I'll make sure that's clear to you over moment. This parable of the banquet, where does it come from? What's Jesus saying? There was in Judaism at the time an association between the coming of Messiah and a banquet. And if you to read around different commentators about how that association came about, you will arrive at this verse in Isaiah 25, 6 to 8. It says, On this mountain the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, pine cuts of choice meat, and fine vintage wine. On this mountain he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud is over all the peoples, the sheep covering all of the nations. When he has swallowed death once and for all, the Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. So the Jewish people at the time of Jesus, they would have known about this passage in Isaiah very well. So there was a knowledge in the people that when Messiah would come, there would be some sort of sense of banquet. So it's very significant that when Jesus fed the 5,000, plus women and children, there was a sense in which they would have associated Jesus laying out a banquet for God's people. And Jesus here in this parable, he wants to instruct those who were listening to, on two points, I believe. The first point is this. Don't assume just because of your economic status or your religious affiliations that you are automatically included as people who are going to be part of the banquet of God, part of God's people. There was a sense in which people had to respond to the call. And that speaks to someone like me when I was growing up in church. I grew up in a Christian home, and so I was, I was told about Jesus from a very young age. But I would have been silly to assume that just because I grew up in church that I was included in the people of God. Yeah. I had a connection to the people of God, and there was a sense in which I believe God's hand was upon my life because of my parents' relationship with God. But there came a time in my own life when I had to make my own decision to follow Jesus. I had to respond to the call. I couldn't say, well, Jesus, my parents were Christians, or I went to church growing up. I had to respond. And if I was to give Jesus my excuses of things that I, I found more important, well, then I would miss out. So the first point is Jesus was saying to those people that he was talking to, don't just assume you're in because of who you are and who you know. You need to respond to the call for yourself. And also, there was another group of people who they would not typically have invited to banquets, and those were the people who were on the margins of society, the poor, the lame, those who had leprosy and so forth. Now, those kinds of people, they couldn't make excuses because they didn't have lots of money to go out and be buying fields and doing all the other things that people who were making excuses were doing. And Jesus was saying, well, if the people who you would typically think would be at a banquet of the Messiah don't want to come. They want to make their excuses. They're busy with other stuff. Well, then I am not going to throw a banquet and nobody turn up. He was going to make sure that everybody had an opportunity to respond to the call for themselves. And this quite often plays out in the missiology of the church quite like that. Often it's people who are on the margins of society, the people who we think might not typically want to connect to church are those who are most responsive to the message because they seemingly, the natural at least, have less to lose by 
giving their life to Jesus. Because we have to, when we give our life to Jesus, we come into relationship with him. Be prepared to lay everything down. This is why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to come into the kingdom of God. He knew for some people the degree of sacrifice, the degree of commitment that that would require of them would cause them to find an excuse not to want to be part of God's people. So these two aspects to it. So people couldn't assume that their association was just being Jewish, just being maybe connected to some Pharisee or some part of the religious establishment. That wasn't enough. They had to make their own decision. You too, you have to make your own decision. God has no grandchildren. He only has sons and he only has daughters. And like the servant of the master who went out into the places, the parts of the city where people wouldn't typically want to go because it was dangerous, maybe a bit stinky or whatever else, we have to be prepared to be like those servants of the master. We have to be prepared to go wherever we need to go to invite people to come and join in the community of God. There can be no places where we say, this is a red line for me. I don't want to get associated with that type of person, these types of people. We have to be prepared to reach the lost, the least, and the last. And that will come with a sense of discomfort for us. Now, I believe that as, as Life Church, whichever congregation you go to, you will find people who are prepared to do that. We are not an elitist church. We don't sit in some sort of socioeconomic bubble where we, where we just take care of ourselves and we don't want to reach out to people who society by and large wouldn't want to ignore. I believe that's very much at the centre of our missional strategy, to reach whoever, whoever, whoever. So I don't believe in many senses you could say or accuse Life Church of being those who would not want to go and do that. And I believe we always teach a very clear gospel message that you, you yourself need to make a commitment towards Jesus. You need to decide for yourself that you want to follow him and you want to be part of his people. So I want to teach now into a kind of a third area of this parable which speaks of the future. Because when we read the parable of the banquet and we read Isaiah's passage, which I haven't got on the screen there, there is this sense in which it speaks forward to a time when everything that God has planned for humanity comes to a conclusion. When you have a wedding banquet, you don't have the wedding banquet at the beginning of the ceremony, you have it after the ceremony. Sometimes, do people have wedding breakfast these days? Maybe if you're really rich, you might have something before the service. That certainly wasn't my experience. You have the ceremony when everyone's married, you take the photos, which takes an inordinate, inordinate amount of time. Terrible if you're, if, you're a, if you're a, particularly if you've gone to a wedding, which sometimes you do when you're married, to keep you don't really know that well. And you're there at some sort of venue, and there's photos being taken, and it's taking like three or four hours just to get the right pictures. And there's no one that you know to talk to. You just gotta hold on and wait and keep checking that board that tells you where you're gonna be sitting. You're right ready to go and they call you for dinner. So the banquet, the feast, these things they speak of completion, they speak of the end. And in Isaiah, it also has this 
description of this person, this, this person that's described as the Lord Isaiah, wiping tears from people's eyes. Where have we seen that? Revelation 21 4. One day, the Lord will write, wipe every tear from our eyes. It speaks of the future. And also, when Messiah would come, that also spoke of the consummation, the closing up, the finishing of all things. So, let me just give you a, a couple of points about how I believe, in keeping with this, this banquet feast being, in, in, certainly in this parable, a kind of a proleptic, a looking forward statement about what will happen at the end when all things come together. Because Jesus will bring everything at some time to a conclusion. The more we watch the news, we think it could be sooner rather than later. Now here we go into something, um, something of a controversial passage. And I'm going to give you just my account of how Jesus will wrap it all up before we all sit down together for dinner with Jesus. At that banquet, okay? If you disagree with me, that's fine. We're not a cult. You can disagree with me. But I'm just going to give you my version um, of events. So in Matthew 24, talking about this end time, it says this, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, there were people eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Now when I grew up in church, I grew up in a church where it was taught quite regularly that it was possible for Jesus to invisibly appear somewhere in the sky and those who were really walking close to the Lord would vanish. And then the really naughty Christians would be left. And some other people who might have to potentially go through a very traumatic ordeal, we call it a tribulation, before they would get the chance to go and be with Jesus. That's how I grew up. I remember coming home from school one time when I was about 11 or 12 years old. And, and uh, at that age, I had a key to the house nothing strange about 11 or 12 year old having a key to the house. But I remember coming home and I could, I could smell before I got to the kitchen there was something that had been baked and my mum had baked a cake. And I walked in and I said to my mum, hey mum! And she wasn't there. But there was a baked cake. Clearly, freshly baked. Just sat there, giving off its enticing odour. But no mum. And there was a moment in my mind where I thought, have I been left Behind. I know a few years later, actually, while I was ministering at another church, there was a, a girl called Heather. It had been a very snowy day, and there was no traffic on the road, really snowy, but eerily quiet, nothing going on. And my wife, Nikki, she got a phone call, and uh, the phone call said, Is Dave with you? And Nikki said, Yes, Dave's with me. She goes, Phew. Because I thought the rapture would happen and I missed it. <laughs> now, what's really interesting is she didn't say, oh, Nikki, phew, you're there. <laughs> she said, Dave, is he there? So there is this, well, certainly in my experience, sometimes there's anxiety that Jesus may have come and taken certain people away and we may have been too naughty to be included in that gathering and missed out. 
But I believe it's quite clear when we read the passage of Scripture itself that I've highlighted in there and I've put it in bold in the context of Matthew. It says they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Who gets taken away? It's the wicked people who get taken away and it's the righteous people who are left. And in fact, when you read Luke's account of the same thing, he says in Luke 17, 26-25, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People went on eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark and the flood came and what? Destroyed them all. So the language changes from taking them away to destroying them. Well, we don't know what was destroyed. Noah was saved. So I think it's quite clear in the context that actually the people who were left behind are those who have escaped the judgment of God and actually those who are included in God's people. The sweeping away is actually God sweeping away those people who are not part of his group in judgment. So the first thing is there will come a time when there's a dividing going on. If we contextualize it back to the parable of the banquet that we've just been talking about, there will come a time in the people's lives who decided that they were too busy to respond to the master's call to come to the banquet. Or there will come a time when judgment would happen and those who had not responded to the call to be at the banquet, they would be taken away, swept away and destroyed because they hadn't responded to the call. Another bit here, we're not going to go into this because we can't deal with them all too uh, uh, intricately. This thief metaphor is a sense of surprise. <coughs> now often you think about a thief coming something that happens secretly and suddenly, and it's the secrecy that we kind of get fixated on. But it's actually the surprise that Jesus wants to emphasize. I'll just... Um, Move down in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 5. He says, But you, talking to the Christians now, uh, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So this purpose of this thief, this, this um, sudden coming of Jesus, which is tied into the day of the Lord, it shouldn't surprise the righteous, but it will be a surprise for the unrighteous. There's a sense of suddenness to it. We shouldn't surprise us who are waiting for it. But it will surprise those who are not waiting for it. Moving on. We will get to meet with Jesus in the air. Okay, I'll read this bit of Thessalonians out. Paul says, For we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not proceed those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord, you can add, forever. Now when we read that in English, it looks pretty straightforward this whole sense of meeting the Lord. But in the original language, actually, there are lots of different words for the same word that we use in English. 
For example, even just using a biblical word like hell, there are four different names in Greek that you can use. We only have one word, they have four. So it's interesting sometimes to look at the meaning of the original word rather than the one that we use in our English translation. And if you were to read that back, actually, it's a very technical term. It's to do with going out and meeting a dignitary. It was used in official occasions about going out to, to meet somebody for a diplomatic reason. So imagine when Jesus is going out, sorry, he's coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And he's going out, people are out there, they go out of the city to meet him, they're laying down their palm leaves. They went out and to meet him, but not just a hey Jesus, you're here. It was a welcoming party to receive him into the city. It wasn't simply go out and you know get your photo with Jesus as quickly get a selfie as he comes in. It was a welcoming party. In fact, I've quoted up there Matthew 25, 1. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Why did they go out and meet the bridegroom? Because they would take their lamps and they would go with the bridegroom to meet the bride. It was a sense of official receiving, going to greet and then going in to establish whatever that greeting was all about. So the, the amazing thing is that someday we will get gathered up to meet with Jesus and be part not of his exit strategy, but his entrance strategy. We will meet with Jesus to come and begin to reign and rule with him. When Jesus comes, he will destroy everything that stands in his way. Now, when you look around in the world at the moment, if I was to do a straw poll in here and say, anybody think the world is running well? I would like to think that most people would say no. If you do think the world is running well, I would like to meet with you because your socioeconomic status is probably something that would be helpful for the church. <laughs> for most of us, we feel that the situation around us, wherever you look on the news, things are not great. There are pockets where things are good. There are places where we say, wow, there's some good things going on there. But if we take the whole world as our context, we would say things are not brilliant. But there's going to come a time that the Bible uses this, this phrase about a man of lawlessness, who we can understand from Christian tradition would be a personification, a person who, who basically had the whole power of hell Behind them. And what is really amazing about this verse is that when Jesus comes, it says he would destroy this person with the breath of his mouth and the splendor of his coming. Now we can read over that very quickly, but the but the magnitude of what is being described here is quite stunning. This person, we can understand, represents the whole host of hell in one person. And that's nothing to Jesus. He doesn't even use force to move him out of the way. Just the splendor of his coming and the breath of his mouth is enough to, enough to blow this person away. What an incredible thing. Like all of the hosts of hell, all of the gates of hell, Lucifer himself, standing behind this one person to establish that person's reign on earth. And Jesus would be like, no problem to me, God. Touch of the many things. <laughs> Incredible. So 
Lord. Okay, the final thing, and then we'll bring this up. Then what will happen for us is that we must all give an account for our lives. You know, Jesus knows everything that we do and everything that we say. But one day we will have to give an account to him for what we do and say anyway. It's kind of like with my kids sometimes, I'm looking through my kitchen window to the back garden, getting busy with some washing up, maybe making some toast, putting the kettle on, they're all kind of by that window so I can look out to the garden. And occasionally they have a scrap or a fight and they're running around and then something goes on and then they hear the shriek and the tears and they come running in. Now at that moment I could say to them, don't worry, you save your breath, I know what happened. But I don't. I want to hear from them <laughs> what happened. I want to know if what I see matches up to what they see. Because I want to give them a chance to confess. I want to give them a chance to tell me what happened with truth. I want, them to, I want to give them a chance to tell me the real version of events, not just what I see. Because when they tell me, I get to test the integrity of their hearts. I already know what's happened. I watched it. But what I don't know that I give room for is how well that they will respond to the opportunity to get it off their chest, to tell me with truthfulness what really happened. Now at this stage of their development, truth is something just of a theory. It's, it's something that potentially could happen occasionally. I think we might get to the truth. I don't think we have one confessional moment yet where I can say, well, well done boys, that's exactly what happened. I don't think it's ever happened yet, but I'm in hope. I'm in hope that someday that they will feel ready to tell me exactly what went on, even if it makes them look bad. And then I'll feel like a proud parent that I've done my job. So Jesus, he looks at the window of our world. He knows what's going on. Yeah, it's very good. But one time he will ask us all for an account. He wants to see what we've got to say. Ourselves. And that will be a test and a challenge to all of us. And we should live our lives in such a way that we know that we're going to give an account to him someday. Yeah. So whenever he comes, in whatever way he comes, and whatever your view of how all of time and eternity will come together and be wrapped up, there are certain things for sure. To know Jesus and to be known by Jesus, that's the main thing. We have to make a decision like the bank We can't say, I, well, I knew about you, Jesus. I've heard of you. And then just have a whole list of excuses. We have to make that decision ourselves. But then he will ask for an account of our lives. And we have to be ready to give an account. So we, if we're wise, we, we have to be ready now to live in such a way that we can be happy about what we've got to say. Live in a kind of way that you would be pleased with what you get to offer at that moment to Jesus, happy about what you've got to say. So with that parable of the banquet, it was a challenge to the hearers to think, were they in or were they out? Well, they couldn't just assume they were in. It was a decision to make. And then the people who would not normally be included in those banquets, the lost, the least, and the last, they were they were going to be gathered to, they were going to get an opportunity, they were going to be invited, and we too need to be part of that because at one time when the banquet itself does actually happen, because in the context of the great banquet, we see the preparation, we see the calling, 
We see the reaching out. We see the going into the city. We see how the master goes about his business of invitation. But then at one time, the invitations will be done. The doors to the banquet will be closed. And people will get to sit down. And we need to know, one, did we accept the invitation to be part of it? And two, did we play our part for the master to go and make sure as many people were there as possible? Because at some time, the master is going to come back. He will wipe every tear from every eye. He will bring everything to account. He will establish justice on the earth. And he will make sure he has destroyed any opposition to truth and righteousness and peace on the earth. The challenge is, are we in and are we about his business of inviting others into it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we soberly listen to that challenge in your word today about making sure that we're in. None of us should ever just assume because of some affiliation or church attendance or an infant baptism that we have automatically passed from an outsider to becoming an insider. And Father, if there's anybody here today who has never made that step, never made that decision to respond to the call of the Master, to come and be part of his banquet, to become part of his people, to become part of those who are invited and respond and get to sit down with him in heaven. I pray that no one leaves this place today without responding to that call. And for those that have responded, I pray none of us, Lord God, will be lazy in regards to the Master's business. That we will be going out to wherever, to whomever needs to hear that call. That we will play our part of inviting, of asking, of speaking out that there is an invitation to come to the banquet of our Master Jesus. That when you do return, that when you do wrap things up, and when the time in history has played its part and you bring all things together, that we have done everything that we have it in our power to do to have served your invitation strategy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarranty.com.